Hey, what's going on guys? My name is Kenneth Jackson. I'm an actor from Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Trey Riley. I'm a writer-director from Charlotte, North Carolina. And this is Cinevibes. Before we get into the movie today, what in the heck were you watching this past week? So... I just happened to go down to the theater. Bad answers only. <laughs> Bad answers only? I rewatched <laughs> the entire first season of Barney. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> Shout out PBS Shout or whatever that used PBS to come on. Yes, in the childhood. Um, <laughs> no, I was a big comfy couch type kid. Um, you remember that show? <laughs> no. No? Dude, why does nobody remember that? I feel like that's just that some been dark memory slightly... I have. It might have been a little bit after my time. <laughs> but do you remember Caillou? I didn't watch it, but okay. I knew that. I remember it I was around. It. Anyways, yes. we'll have to do an entire episode on like ch- children's shows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's some entertainment. Riveting. Riveting. Um, but no, I went down to the movies because they're starting to open up. Went to the IMAX. I saw a little movie called Tenet. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You dirty dog. <laughs> I watched Tenet, and all I can say is that it felt like all of my like chemistry, physics class, when I had no idea it's 8 a.m. in the morning, and my brain is not functioning as it should, and I'm just like, <laughs> everything's going by me, and I'm like, I just nod and go with it. Just... Keep keep going. And uh, honestly, in watching it, I didn't think it would be a big issue with me. <sighs> the mixing of the audio. Uh-uh. Mm. It's just atrocious. It's absolutely terrible because so Are many there subtitles? times... So many times I'm sitting there listening, it's going well, and then the music kicks up to a little bit higher than the... Speaking of the characters, and I miss out on, like, a concept. Like, they could be talking about what they ordered at Starbucks that morning. The music kicks up, and they explain quantum physics right there. And I'm like, I feel like I missed something. (laughs) So. Yeah, I've heard a lot about the mixing, and people have been talking about that ever since. Mm -hmm. You know, even Inception, way back that far. And then most recently, Dunkirk Mm -hmm. was halfway inaudible. Yeah. Um, perhaps on purpose with Dunkirk. I don't know why it's that way with Tenet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I guess that's a bummer. I don't know. Is I, it? Another issue I had with it was, and this is all technical stuff. This is stuff that can be fixed. This is nothing to say about the story, the acting, none of that. This is about the experience of watching the movie and taking in what is being said and done from the story, the interpretation. Uh, but I also very much dislike how loud it is in the theater, right? I can understand it being loud really? because you want it to be intense. But when I hear a gunshot and I'm scared that my ears might pop, like, and I'm always like, I'm close to putting my fingers and my ears in the theater because of how loud it is. I'm- you said you saw it in IMAX, right? Yes. Well... That's kind of the price to pay, That's I guess, their right? shtick? Well, in which case, I... Loud and proud. I don't know about that. I, I can understand the rumbling seats and all that sort of stuff and how, like, you know, theatrical sure. it was. Sure, like Dolby Cinema and But stuff. that was way too much. Because then, like, there was a train scene, and it's, like, going from people talking, and I can, like, I'm listening in, I'm listening in to what they're saying, and then immediately screeching wheels on a train and i'm like oh Mm. my god you know we watched uh me and gavin we went and watched uh 2001 Mm -hmm. when it re-released in imax Mm -hmm. maybe a year or two ago right and there's a portion in that movie where an alarm goes off Mm -hmm. for like a solid 60 seconds right and there was permanent hearing damage. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, I mean it was yeah. it was unbearable to hear. Yeah, so some ways I can definitely uh, relate to that. It's unpleasant, and I mean 
the story in itself I thought was fantastic um, in the sense that I enjoy movies that are kind of complex. So I heard it best described in that. So the movie has a runtime of what? Two hours 30? Not sure. So I think I've tried it, I to about, know as little as possible. I think it's about two hours 30. And it's like the first beginning, like first like three uh or two-thirds of the movie is kind of like a bunch of that taking in information and trying to understand and decode the entire movie and then all of it starts to make sense uh later on but uh, that's as much as i'll say about that you know i'll respect your thank you your uh i don't even care about the viewers right now just thank you on my own behalf (laughs) so tell (laughs) me what have you been watching I watched, and this was a show that I was going to do last week, but um, I'd only seen one episode so far, Mm -hmm. but I finished the season, first season, and apparently the only season, Mm -hmm. because it got canceled, Right. so that might tell you something, Yeah. but for the show The First, which was on Hulu, Mm -hmm. and it's got our boy... Sean Penn in it, mm. who is both charming and terrifying at the same time. Right. And I don't know how he does that. Right. He also looks like he's 65, but has the body of a 25-year-old because he's shredded. <laughs> right. So he's just an anomaly of a person. But it kind of focuses on his character, and you know, he was going to be the commander to the first um, mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of shows about going to Mars right now. Oh, yeah. And I, if I had to boil it down, I enjoy the show, but it kind of loses its way and takes some abstract parallel storylines. And mm-hmm. if you want to watch it because you think it's about space travel, then you're going to be disappointed. Mm. And then if you want to watch it because you wanted to see like odd sort of strained relationships and the effects of having a job such as an astronaut. Mm -hmm. I think you might also be a little disappointed. Right. So it falls somewhere in this weird like world between all that. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of has this parallel story, like trying to ground itself back to earth Mm -hmm. and feel very human. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I enjoyed it. But I can definitely see why it probably lost its viewers Mm -hmm. throughout the um, first season and then ultimately got canceled. Yeah. I'm still glad I watched it, even though I knew it was, you know, there wasn't going to be a second season. Mm -hmm. But then there's a little part of me that's like, hmm, I kind of, I feel like if they would have got that second season, that's what we would have been trying to get. Yeah. And that happens a lot with shows. I mean, you can, like those last few episodes, it's like, oh, I can see where they're going. Mm-hmm. They're going to get into it. And then just like, well, doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like those mov- or those shows that are coming out now, uh, because I watched the first few episodes of one of them, um, and I can't remember which one it was, but... Uh, it just was it a new one? No, it wasn't a new new one. It was like just before this one. It was like with the uh, female lead. Um, I can't remember. I think it was on Netflix. I can find it uh, later. But it was. Uh, it just seemed way too much. Like I was. I was watching it because I was like, oh, I wonder what this would entail about you know, and speak on of the psych psychology of going to mars and that entire thing which honestly i think it did a decent job mixing the two of trying to make it a uh, docudrama in the fact that it mixed in like oh here's this person that is a scientist talking about what these astronauts will have to deal with when they travel here and what you know technical things will have to happen in order for this to happen like oh there's a uh, there's a 2% chance the entire fuselage explodes when it gets to this height above Mars right. or whatever. So it mixed in that well, and I thought that was great. But at the same time, the drama aspect kind of was like, 
mm, not really up my alley. It just seemed kind of wonky to me, but I think that was just maybe when I watched it, maybe if I watched it a second time, I'd be like, oh, cool, I can binge this entire thing right now. But it just yeah. wasn't my cup of tea at that point. I think there's a fine line with, and I don't even care about when people say it's not realistic. No one that's a critic knows what realistic is oh, yeah. for traveling to Mars. I mean, oh yeah, let's be let's be realistic yes. about that because first off, we haven't done it yet. Yeah, and secondly, anyone that's critiquing a movie probably doesn't have a vast knowledge of space travel and all the NASA analytics and technicalities. So mm-hmm. I don't even care about. Uh, realism in that particular regard Mm -hmm. um but i think those shows need to have a nice balance of drama and kind of like a technical prowess or like an intrigue Mm -hmm. because it's all new and like even movies about going to the moon i mean i still am like baffled and in awe and just like wonder and we've done that you know multiple times and Mm -hmm. it's not really a new idea but it's still is really intriguing. Yeah. So when you kind of lose that balance, um, like I feel like this show did, and probably a lot of these other ones. I have another one I watched. I'll, we'll talk about next week. But um, I'm looking at Netflix yeah. now, and they have another series out now, Away. That's the one I'm going to talk about next week that I watch. So it's they, they got some space stuff all over the place, yeah. which I'm a sci-fi SpaceX person. has everyone jacked. I'm a space person, so I enjoy space stuff, but I feel like sometimes it can be kind of wonky if they like depending on how they approach it, which some a lot of them they approach it at the whole like human experience of being in space. Like the uh film with Passengers. Uh uh Robert Pattinson. Uh oh. uh what's it called? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It, the one that he was in uh, a, a few years back, and it was... Uh, a High Life. High Life, yes. So, And he's in space, and he's on a rock orbiting a, bl- uh, a black hole. So, And it's talking about that whole culture that they had there. And I'm like, it, most of these shows, they try to highlight the human experience and how isolation and just being away from you know in a confined space can pretty much affect a human so and i think the martian from all the ones i've seen so far does a great job of threading that needle Mm -hmm. of the kind of losing your mind versus any comedic aspects to it yeah there might be um then outside of that you know, a lot of movies choose not to focus too technically on it. And even, you know, something like Interstellar, for instance, mm-hmm. it kind of jumps between travel moments. Like, we never, like, really focus on the time except once. Mm-hmm. It's being, like, completely altered by a different gravitational field. Yeah. Um. But... If you just hang out there and focus on that the whole time, then you lose some. Or you invite people to ask more questions about it, and then that's where it's like, ah, discrepancies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the show that I did watch was called Mars. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. Yes, it's called Mars, and it's kind of like a docudrama <clears throat> uh, of, oh, okay. this is what... If we were to go to Mars, this is what people would experience. And then it shows the drama of them in that situation. Very interesting. But today we are talking about another film from our boy Bong Joon-ho. Yes. This is one that we did our first uh, poll and we asked you guys out of four options which one you'd want to hear mm-hmm. and... Pretty unanimously, uh, this kind of jumped out on front, mm-hmm. and so it was. A, it was a close one, I'll admit. Like we had Drive uh, that was up there, close as well. But then also we had Rogue One, which I was like, that was almost like the clear winner from the beginning because we had like four votes for that, and then there were like two votes for um, Snowpiercer. 
and then it just filtered down from there. But I thought that was I thought I would be watching Rogue One rather than <laughs> anything else. And so then a lot of you guys came up and were like, yo, watch Snowpiercer. And I'm glad because <laughs> I've seen Rogue One, but I hadn't seen Snowpiercer. So I got you're going to get my fresh takes. Hot takes right here. So hot that they're literally only hours old. That's right. They're still smoldering. We're reviewing Snowpiercer today, the 2013 film from Bong Joon at a runtime of two hours and six minutes. This is one that I think had a somewhat uneventful theater run Mm -hmm. and potentially due to the way it was marketed or whatever, I don't remember even ever seeing it being in theaters and I've heard a few commentators on it saying that they had to actually drive a decent ways to be able to see it. Mm-hmm. But that might lead you to think, oh, well, there wasn't a lot of hope with it or it wasn't one that they were pushing really hard. And if that's the case, they're wrong. Right. Because it's actually an amazing movie mm-hmm. and we're going to jump into it. Yeah. So with my first take, if we're just jumping into it, the first thing that I thought of when I pulled up Snowpiercer Number one thing, I love Chris Evans. <laughs> First thing that popped into my mind, I was like, I know he's the lead, and I know that I love him in uh, a lot of the movies that he's been in, and he's really enjoyable to watch. And as I started watching this, I was like, that's Chris Evans. He's doing his Chris Evans thing, you know yes. what I mean? Like, we know he's coming in there all suave and, like, you know, doing doing his thing i don't know how else to describe it but he's chris evans and so but with all the other actors that are in there uh tilda swinton i thought she was hilarious i loved her role that was her character is kind of wacky dang near perfect (laughs) i mean for what she was trying to be Mm -hmm. it's scary good yeah and then i love seeing octavia spencer in there as well i've seen some of uh her more recent stuff and so of course Love seeing her. Yeah. And then, uh, of course... Did you see our boy? Our boy! Makes an appearance as uh, Mr. Kim in our last review, Parasite. Kang Ho Song? Yeah. Yeah. He was in there. He was even less lower... (laughs) He was an even lower class citizen in Mm -hmm. Snowpiercer, if you can believe that. Right. Yeah, I was like... When I was watching, I was like... Is that is that him? Cause he he was uh it was a little bit different of a character. Like he kinda looked different than he did in Parasite. Yeah. So I was kinda like, is that like the entire time I'm kinda like, mm, is it? Is it He's a lot more worn down and it's a druggy mm-hmm. essentially. But a genius. Oh yeah. He just is like sedated by the uh drug of choice, uh Chronal, which is part of the plot to uh it's kind of like to sedate people, I guess, but mm-hmm. it's used rec- recreationally, just like every other drug that gets invented. Oh, yeah. Someone's snorting Tide Pods and stuff. So, I mean, it, it's I, like I, I whatever the use, it looks like whatever pods. the use was originally, it uh, got out on the streets too. Yeah. But kind of a little, if you haven't seen the film, uh, breakdown of how it starts out, it's set. Slightly in the future, I believe, 2031 or something like mm-hmm. that. And the government, a government, all the governments, someone has tried to essentially turn back climate change by firing missiles into the atmosphere. And of course, like all great movies about the world ending and apocalypse and famine and climate change, uh, it doesn't go so well. Mm-hmm. And so everything pretty much dies. The world is, uh, the atmosphere is compromised and we're set back into this kind of modern ice age, if you will. Mm -hmm. And this brilliant mind, Wilford, who is an engineering genius, a godlike figure, if you will, comes in and creates this system established on this train that circles the globe until this ice is supposedly going to melt. And then we restart civilization. Mm-hmm. Enter Chris Evans and the lower class citizens in the back of the train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
that was something that whenever I started watching this film, we had talked about it in Parasite and how Bong Joon-ho seemed to speak on the class differentiation. And this film is pretty much no different in the fact that it there's a really good quote and I, I'll drop it now. But in the final bit, like, should do you, do you want me to drop it now? I'll drop it now. Yeah. All right. Uh, about so, dropping some quotes. Ed Harris's character Wilford tells Chris Evans, uh, and this is um, not verbatim, but he pretty much says that everyone has their preordained positions and they play their own parts, and that uh, Chris Evans was not where he needed to be, pretty much, and. That speaks on a lot of like, you know, and Chris Evans retorts with that's what people with power tell people like me that are in the lower class back of the train. And so this entire film pretty much speaks on that with a bunch of different um, in a bunch of different ways. And the first big one is the people in the tail of the train pretty much. If anybody's going to be taken out because of the whole, like, population control thing, it's going to be them. It's not going to be the people in the front of the train. And Exactly. That's something that I think is very powerful, and it talks about how, you know, people in power are like, you know, I mean, it's not going to be me. Why not them, right? So I thought that was extremely powerful. Yeah, I think in our society, when you look at any of these major companies out there, I won't name drop any, but you know the companies that rely on uh, a child workforce to provide their products at a low price with high profit margins. Mm -hmm. Um, The capitalism that we all love um, that provides all the things that we are able to buy here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is all kind of like that's the focus here in this movie is that that idea of capitalism relies on the lower class yeah and not just like as a workforce but in this particular instance as a source of driving towards the future mm-hmm. and um i don't know if bong specifically has like a big passion in his heart for like bringing awareness to social inequality mm-hmm. but like you mentioned he talks about it in parasite I assume it's laced into some of his other films as well. I haven't seen him. Mm-hmm. But he definitely is trying to continually say something. And in this particular case, it's a little more focused on kind of a global social class, more so than, you know, anything specific. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this movie is actually based on a novel. It's a French novel from uh, 1982 mm. that focuses a little more on the climate change aspect of things mm-hmm. and how that like affected our ecosystem yeah. and in that there's some social class discussions and conflict and uh, points made, but mm-hmm. obviously the film kind of focuses on that more than the book did. And yeah, I think, you know, when you look at the overall story here, it just makes at least myself think, what is the cost mm-hmm. to have, what I have yeah. to have what someone more well off than me has. And it's really put into words and visuals in a unsettling way in Snowpiercer. Yeah. So one thing that jumped out to me pretty early on in the film is the idea of revolution. And I think this is some topic that very like literature loves to talk about because it's usually a very emotional time with a lot of people so you know the american revolution the french revolution all these revolutions were very much like let's throw over and even the um soviet uh revolution like that whole Mm -hmm. entire thing uh is very pent up with emotion and saying we're tired of those people that pretty much step on us and i think it's a conflicting idea because one you know the entire story is based around a train that is the only survivable, as far as they know, place on Earth. No other life form 
is alive on the planet other than those on the train so you're looking at this tiny tiny place that you can only live on the world in this place right, right. that pretty much is the big driving force of this but with a revolution there's the idea of let's get to the front of the train but here's the thing is that that idea of let's get to the front of the train and even possibly stop the train you're dooming the entire train and most likely everyone aboard the train you know what i mean yeah and so i think this speaks really highly on how dangerous a revolution is and how it can go bad very quickly you know what i mean and so that's sure. where it's very conflicting in my mind is a revolution however based in reality that it is truly what needs to happen it is very bad you know what i mean it could doom the entire system altogether but sure. that that was running through my mind in the beginning of the film and it's like these this pent up like i need to do something we need to stop this tyrant we need to stop all of this i agree 100% with that but i'm also thinking about how everyone else could die as a result of such a thing you know what i mean yeah and to your point on revolutions in general um when you study any of them the idea is the system has to go mhm like at whatever cost, we all die, but the system's gone mm-hmm. and let's completely rebuild. And brief side note, I think every time they go around the globe or make one cycle, that's a revolution mm-hmm. in the story. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so in order for that to happen, to overthrow the system, which is the only way to evoke change and to have meaningful change, not just kill one person or change leadership Mm -hmm. the cost could be everything yeah i mean it could be uh you could by doing the very thing that you need to do you could undo it all at the same time yeah and that's a very great observation and one that you know i think a lot of people outside of this movie when you think about it it can (laughs) it can kind of be a bit damning to think of. Yeah. The one other thing that I noticed as well is particularly the scene where they are fighting the guards with the blades, right? So the guards with all the hatchets and all of that sort of stuff when they're in that car right there is the fact that when the lights go out, that's it's before the lights go out. But they're still fighting, and Chris Evans, his character, is pretty much just going on a rampage. And you see uh, his friend, uh, the name escapes me right now, but his friend is watching him pretty much kill all of these guards and everything. And you're seeing this sort of... Is that Edgar? Edgar, yes. So you're seeing him watch Chris's character kill all of these guards. Right. And it's pretty much this anger that you see Chris, he has for these people. He utterly hates them and despises them. And he uses this anger to kill them. Right. And so this brought up in my mind the fact that, you know, in order for something like a revolution to occur, you have to watch these good men in quotation marks, which we deem as good and they're very honorable and they're leaders do very terrible things, you know? Yeah. You have to see them kill people. You have to see them pretty much trample and act like they're just, you know, almost ruthless in a sense. But these people you look up to, you see them doing that, and it's it's very, very conflicting. I, I feel like uh, a good chunk of this movie is like, in order to achieve something good, you have to become what you despise. You know what I mean? Mm, preach. That's quotable. That's top-notch <laughs> content right there, my top-notch friend. Top-notch content, TM. Yeah, I, I want to focus on Chris Evans for a second because, like you've been talking about, his character is somewhat of a, if not the leader, a leader, and kind of the driving force towards the front of this train, which is also symbolic of growth towards 
change, revolution, mm-hmm. all these different things yeah. about social inequality. And where this falls like in his filmology is that he had just done Captain America one and mm-hmm. the second one came out like a year after this movie. So, you know, he had some films under his belt and maybe nothing substantial mm-hmm. yet. But I think we really got a performance out of him that we haven't even seen since mm-hmm. where he's just all over the board with his range of emotion and his ability to go from the scene you were mentioning where he's just ravaging through these people mm-hmm. with no thought to just like utter despair and heartbreak mm-hmm. um, at various points, uh, specifically once he makes it up to the front of the train mm-hmm. and he's got to experience loss Yeah, when, I mean, his whole like crew essentially dies mm-hmm. like to the point of what a revolution is everyone like they're just all gone yeah and so for him to be able to kind of bring all that to the forefront i think for me not that i needed it because again i have only seen this in the past year or so it really validates him as an actor and i, I if anyone thinks he's just like captain america then I think you need to watch some more of his movies because yes. he's got a real solid arsenal uh, behind him mm-hmm. and some chops for sure. Oh, yeah. So there is one thing that I loved about Chris was that whole monologue that he had at the very one at near the end of the film, which honestly, I might adapt and use that as some monologue that I use for uh, auditions or whatever. Absolutely. It's such a good monologue. And it reveals a lot about what drives him as a character. And uh, one thing that I noted down here while I was watching the film is that when he's talking to the older gentleman, uh, John Hurt's character, Gilliam, Mm. he tells Gilliam that, you know, how can he lead? How can he be the leader of all of these people when he has two good arms? And he mentioned that, and I picked up. I picked up on that immediately. I was like, "That's kind of a strange thing to say," but it's a it's an observation because Gilliam's character doesn't have one of his arms, right? It's cut off. Yeah. And so I thought that was pretty strange at first when I heard that. So I wrote it down, and then later on in the monologue, it makes a lot of sense because it reveals a lot about what drives Chris's character to want to change and make things better and why he's so driven to improve the situation in the back of the train. And it's because his character, he wasn't always that leader type. He was the Mm. guy that was pretty much, and he says it, and I'm going to say it now. He was the type that killed children. And he know, he says in his monologue, I know that children taste better because they had to resort to eating humans right Mm. when the first when the train first started he had to eat children and so gilliam pretty much sacrifices his arm cuts it off and gives it to chris right and um that kid that was spared was edgar and so it's kind of like this sort of you know symbol of just remorse that he has as a character for what he's done in the past and possibly even a like just wanting to be a better human being overall you know what i mean so i i definitely love that monologue and i think it spoke so so much and it was a very emotional monologue like you said it showed his range right there is his anger and his rage towards the people above him but also towards himself as well yeah, I mean, we we jump into this story, obviously, as they're making their move, but for the years and years they've been on this train, you just really get a sense for how gritty and nasty and despicable the circumstances and the living situations have been and what they've had to all sacrifice. And, you know, speaking of that, I wanted to kind of pivot for a minute over to Octavia Spencer's character because... Normally we see her in not roles like this, Mm -hmm. 
but she's like down in the weeds here and she's fighting and just like you know giving him hell mm-hmm. and she said really like cool. she could have easily stayed back and not done any of that but she was so determined for her child to get up there and fight yeah she kind of embodied the whole essence of risk everything to mm-hmm. hopefully make things different for the next generation and um it's just really cool to see her in a different type of role like this mm-hmm. and then you know back to you mentioned Tilda Swinton her role as Mason who she's kind of the bridge between the upper and lower class she you know comes back to visit and deliver information and I guess rations and she's just she's there a lot in the back mm-hmm. and she this is a great choice by bong production design uh wardrobe department mm-hmm. you know, everyone in the back's wearing like black and grays and brown Very just like torn colors. up clothes and then she rolls back there wearing like the brightest nicest like pantsuit setup and just like right in their face flaunting like her status and you can imagine like at any point if anyone could they would just like tear her head off her shoulders yeah (laughs) like it's that amount of built-up tension that you can just feel and um, they're looking for that moment to make their move and her character there's a beautiful kind of monologue she has about knowing your role Mm -hmm. and she uses the analogy of being the head or the foot Mm -hmm. and it's a i don't i don't think you can like sum it up in a quote because it's like a whole monologue but it's just a beautiful way she mentioned all that and she talks about you know you don't wear your shoe on your head the shoe goes on the foot know that you're a foot Mm-hmm. And uh, man, yeah. I just like I wasn't a huge fan of her until this movie, and now I love her. And mm-hmm. you know, credit to the writing because it's beautiful. But like the way she pulled it off is like she is that character, and <laughs> I freaking loved it. Yeah, I I wrote that down as well as she mentions know your place, keep your place, and. I think this touches on one of the biggest issues that I think the film is implying is that, you know, when you're in a higher position, you know, let's take, for example, me and, you know, the entire of America, like the normal, I would, I would say normal and in quotation marks, but the way I live, I don't see myself as rich. Okay. I don't see myself as being at the top. I don't see myself anywhere near the top of like, you know, the Jeff Bezos or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. I, We're the middle class, right? Yeah. I, I assume I'm just in the middle of everything. But there's a great website that shows you the disparity in the classes or at least your income level in the entire world. And it gives you a mm. reference as to where you exist on that scale and so i looked myself up on where i would be and i fell in at the 95th percentile so like really so i'm i'm extremely up there on the scale like i thought i was in the middle you know what i mean but i'm i'm up at like 90 or something like that and we'll have to toss that website in the bio that'd be cool for people to check yeah i'll i'll include it um i don't want to get away too quickly from this, but it it pretty much exemplifies that many people, we see ourselves as, you know, where we are is like in the middle and it's not really, you know, it's hard to see outside of ourselves is what I'm trying to say is that if you're in another class, it's hard to see below you and it's hard to see above you. You're only where you are. And so the whole monologue she gives with keep, know your place, keep your place, is that, you know, she's looking down at them, right? She's looking down at them from where she is, and she knows that she's down there. 
and or that she's up there and they're down there and that these people should know they're down there and she's up there you know and i think that's something that is 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 very much spoken to in the film with regards to class is that it's hard to look down at somebody and i i looked this up i'm getting off on a tangent but um <laughs> Keep going, I like I, it. I was looking up, because I, I just Googled it, because I wanted to know, like, homeless people, you know? I just moved, and I see homeless people every time I travel, right? Sure. In the city. Yeah. No, like, on the streets, panhandling, and most of the time, I'll admit, I usually just pass by. And I'm always wondering, like, how did they get there? How did this happen? And... So I did some research and it's like not always people that are just not wanting to work. Many of them do want to work. It's just they can't because they don't have a home and that maybe they have a criminal record and they can't. Right. So it's or disability or something. So the line there between them and me could be so thin in the fact that they just had a bad year and they can't recover. You know what I mean? Yeah, And so I think that's something that's very powerful and I think is probably spoken to in this film is that she's a human. She is just like they are. It's so thin a line as to she could be right back there with them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's so easy to be like, oh, I, I'm like way up here and I'm way above you guys. But really, if you had been born into a different family, you could easily be right back there. There's nothing that distinguishes you from anybody else that's in the back of the yeah. train from the front. And that's one thing that is spoken about with the speech with Wilford and in the front is his whole thing of know that, you know, if you're in the back, you stay in the back. If you're in the front, you're in the front, right? Which is ridiculous because that's all just man-made fabrications. And that's getting into a bunch of existentialist stuff. So <laughs> I will turn the leaf over to you. I'll scab onto that a little bit more. Even right now with all the pandemic stuff going on. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps as a country, we're in this upper 75 to 80, 95% of the world. But even still, I think a lot of people found out that they were two or three paychecks away from being homeless. Mm -hmm. And that it's really that simple. Like, we have these jobs, we make our money, but we are so close to that line mm -hmm. that it's scary. And, it, you know, it really came out during all this. And I, I think it's, you know, movies are meant to entertain, they're meant to create emotions, they're meant to speak on social issues and... Uh, talk about the world and the climate of things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's appropriate to talk about this movie that way and to really focus on it because that's what it's all about. And, you know, it's got this kind of hyper-aware sense to it where it's set in this world, you know, that's kind of desolated at this point. But how far off is that? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean... We're on a train ourselves speeding right towards it, it seems like. Yeah. But um, I, I truly think, and you know, people probably watch Parasite because of all the Oscar buzz. They probably saw, oh, Bong, cool. They looked him up. Oh, Snowpiercer, Chris Evans. I imagine a lot of people have watched this movie recently, and it probably was scary how much it resonated with them, mm -hmm. especially when you're sitting at your home hoping that the unemployment checks keep coming because yeah. you haven't worked in six months and it's just like we're not that different yeah and to try and segregate ourselves the way that the world does and our society does especially in america mm -hmm. it's sickening mm -hmm. it's disgusting to be honest and i'm no better than the next person with some of that myself i'll admit but i think Mainly, I'm just glad that this movie was made, and I'm glad I finally watched it because it really speaks to this level of injustice and inequality that we just perpetuate. We continue to do it. We don't change, and we see what is required to change, and mm -hmm. you know, we're not willing to 
risk that cost you know that that's not on the radar for us yeah i definitely agree because for me you know if you watch this film and you're not digging as far as we probably do into like these sorts of like uh what it reflects as far as society goes or anything if you just watch the movie I'm a big fan of sci-fi and I love films that are like this just the premise because it adds so much you're talking about the train and I see the train as symbolizing society and time so as a country continues people get set in a way as this is how it's supposed to be it's operated like this for in the movie 17 years let's not mm-hmm. mess it up we're go we're doing fine the train is going fine right let's not mess it up a whole generation has grown up to an adult in the time they've been there mm-hmm. and that complacency just builds and builds and it just takes you know, one or two people, a group of people to say it's enough. Yeah. And so this film, if you just watch it and you're not looking into it as deep, I think it does give you a lot to root for because I think it can, you can see a lot of parallels with either your life in the fact that if you put yourself in the character's shoe, if you put yourself in Curtis's shoe, Chris Evans' character's shoe, And you say, if I was in this situation and I was put in the back of the train and I was told I was pretty much nothing. And I'll I'll touch on this a little bit more after I finish this thought. But the children, they're they're raised to think that the back of the train and the girl stands up in classes. People in the back of the train are just the lowest life form, right? They're pretty much Mm -hmm. told that's what it is. And... If you put yourself in Chris Evans' shoe and you hear that sort of thing, it's like, excuse me? No, I'm not. (laughs) Right? And you you sort of feel this. And so I think it does resonate very much with people, regardless of if you're looking at it as a social inequality film that speaks on that, or if it's just a film about a guy who's tired of being just trampled on and wants to change his life. He wants to be ahead. Yeah. He is not a foot. He is not a shoe on top of a man's head. Yeah. Uh I I truly think that this film is beautiful. I want to talk about some other things as well. I don't want to get too hung up on that even though that's the main portion I take away from it myself. Um it's just the we I talked a little bit about it earlier with the costuming, but as you move through the train itself, you see the wealth level kind of dial up. You see the niceties the luxury continue to dial up as they move from car to car towards the engine mm-hmm. and they're in the middle um you start seeing like color and nice things you see people wearing nice clothes you see you mentioned a second ago the children in class mm-hmm. wearing all their nice things and in this comfortable setting um and then eventually you see that the food source is substantially better for everyone up front. All the meats they want, seafood, you know, the nine, the whole nine there. Mm-hmm. And jumping back for a moment, and this is a great kind of parallel to how they view the lower class. They're eating these like blocks, like literally they look like bricks of yeah. like poop. Like mm-hmm. They're just like jello flopping brick poop things mm-hmm. and so that's all the lower class has they deliver them every day and they like to eat the block and you know whatever we find out all those are are insects smashed up and pooped out as cubes mm-hmm. and that is directly correlated to how they view those people as the insects of the world just minute useless minuscule mm-hmm. uh, remnants of society. Yeah. And so you go from that in the back to eating filet mignon and salmon and whatever they got in the front. And it's just throughout this film, there's so many different devices used to kind of push that message and that theme. And I think it's beautifully done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I saw that food and stuff, I was kind of like, oh my God. 
Uh, which <laughs> now, whenever you look back at it, and you you they called them protein blocks or uh, protein bars or whatever it was. You can mm-hmm. see, yeah. like, I mean, I guess they're right. Is it is made of protein, but it's bug protein. Like Bear Grylls is the only yeah. person that would go for one of those. The nutrition level is probably high in protein, but it's insect <laughs> protein. Um, right. But if I jump to the photographer real quick, and he's something that I picked up on really quickly because he would draw these sort of scenarios that were going on during this whole revolution type thing. Like he would draw the children. He would draw the, uh, them with, uh, Tilda, her character in chains and everything. Mm. And I picked up on this and immediately it, it made me think of war photographers and these, uh, these photographers that travel to other countries to photograph revolutions and these atrocities uh, done by the government. And so I immediately was like, he's a record keeper of the entire thing that's going on. And I I don't know if that was something that Bong was trying to say with, you know, that character was there are people that are going to these countries of revolution and turmoil and showing what it looks like and being pretty much a record keeper of what happens in these countries so we can yeah. see them. Um, But I picked up on him really quickly and I was like, that's such an interesting character. Yeah, I think that I would have to imagine that was very intentional to have him kind of be the person capturing it how it is. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I think that's an important role in the world. And then also to bring that in in the film was really nicely done as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The the way it was shot um, is really interesting. It has a lot of aggressive, especially once they get into the kind of higher action sequences and the tension's really high, there's a lot of aggressive movements. And... Mm -hmm. I think it just really, it's a cinematography that like sits in there and feels appropriate, but you don't necessarily question it or say, oh, that shot's really gorgeous or, you know, anything like that. It just feels appropriate. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, much like a sound guy, if the the DP blends in, it's a good thing. And I think that's the case here. Yeah. I loved the aesthetic of the entire film. Just there to me there was a lot of contrast whether it's from the colors or from the lighting. Uh so with you had said when the the first time I noticed it was when the woman in the yellow dress comes back. I can't remember what her name was. Um uh Mason? No, not Mason. It was the other woman. That was in the bright yellow. She takes the children in the beginning. But her mm. her contrast to the dull, muted colors around her was something I picked up on very quickly. But then when you think about the outside world being completely stark white because of the snow and the global uh, freeze... Yeah. And then you think of how dark it is in the train as well. And then when they see the light... It's so strange because they probably went, maybe some of them probably went their whole lives. Like if you lived to be 17 and you were born in the back of the train, you probably never saw the outside world and knew what it looked like. So that is something that I think was really big. And it was highlighted, I think, in the cinematography and the way they captured some of the scenes. Yeah, one of the cars was like all glass, right? Mm -hmm. So when they passed through that one, all these people you mentioned, like the kids that maybe have never even seen daylight, um, kind of see that, you know, there's beauty out there. There's a huge world that though frozen over and kind of uninhabitable right now, perhaps is there. And they've just been completely kind of isolated and smashed into a corner and not allowed to see that. Yeah. It's really powerful. I think it really does speak to somebody's mindset as well is sometimes when you're born in a situation, you can assume that where you are is where you are and that you're not going to get anywhere else from that. 
But then yeah. whenever those people saw the entire world is out there and that they live on a planet and there's more to life than just that train, right? Because they had no preconception of what it was like on the outside world, then it's almost mind-blowing, right? Is that yeah. there's a whole world out there, but you never knew it. Could you imagine, like, in our world right now, at our ages, just going from seeing nothing or a single room to, like, standing beside a river? Like, Dude, that would, just... It would be mind-blowing. Absolutely, yeah, I mean, I'd be like, where do I find more? You'd be crying, you'd be weeping, you'd jump in, like, you'd do everything you can to, like, get more of that. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think that actually happens kind of near the midpoint of the film and I would look at it as fuel for the second half and kind of that second push they have to make Mm -hmm. um, from that point towards the front despite any losses they've already had or any um, setbacks. And yeah, the only other thing I want to really talk about and we'll kind of wrap this up maybe is Wilford himself. Mm -hmm. And it's so clearly laid out that he is this idol of a person, this kind of godlike figure in this story, even so far as that the kids are watching these documentaries in their classroom mm-hmm. about him, like he's some mythical Deity. creature or legend. And uh, I think that's the fragile nature of our society where we can make an idol out of anything, Mm -hmm. especially something that's powerful and perhaps in the case of this film has been the quote unquote life source for them. Yeah. Um, He's really like gotten himself outside of all of it and no one except for perhaps Curtis, Chris Evans character can even imagine like overpowering that, overthrowing it, Mm -hmm. beating it, defeating it, whatever it is. He's just like at this higher level and no one can achieve it. Yeah. I, I think that what I had spoken about earlier with how difficult it could be to overthrow a tyrant mm-hmm. is very exemplified in the meeting with Wilford because he's very persuasive in how he says things. And so we find out the plot twist of the Gilliam was working with Uh, Wilfred the entire time the back of the train was in contact with the front of the train and that the entire thing was staged and that this was all supposed to be a way to cull the population of the train yeah and that's why Gilliam ended up dying was because of too many people losing lives from the front of the train and so he had to take pay the price and you know when we hear him speak we're like you're insane what you're what are you talking about you're so delusional but the thing is is that if you're in his position all you know is the front of the train you you will do anything in your power to stay at the front of the train and keep that power that you have and that was where i was going with my other rant was the fact that if you're in a position and you're above others there's kind of this innate feeling that's like, I want to keep my position. And it's something that is very hard to give up. And I think that speaks a lot to like how we are as a society today is that we want to stay where we are. And if not achieve more, we don't want to go the opposite way. And yeah. we'll do whatever we can to not do that. But I love like how Wilford was pretty much toying with Curtis and saying to him, you know, I want you to lead the train Whenever I leave, you've proven that you can go from the back, the very back of the train to the front of the train. And I want you to lead because you have that quality about you. And so it it almost plays at the, you know, he could easily say, yes, I will. And then forget about everybody else. Right. And that is what I thought was so fantastic about um, Ed Harris's character was that He's speaking very much like what we would call a madman, but yet in that situation, he's pretty much saying, you can take this position and forget about living in the back and just, you know, you can live at the front now, right? Yeah. And that's something I think a lot of people would be tempted to take is the 
oh, you want a billion dollars? You could easily have a billion dollars, but you got to lead this entirely morally corrupt business in order to do it. Yeah, you have to compromise your morals and beliefs. Yeah. Like making a deal with the devil, essentially. And so, so that's why I liked the very end of this film, is the fact that Curtis, he could easily be, could easily have said, you know what, okay. But that would have been... It, it wouldn't have been as impactful as it was when Chris goes and stops the train, uh, or at least, like, you, sacrifices his arm, which I think was a big symbol as well, is he used his own arm to stop the ro- rotating gear to get the child out of the train, and pretty Talk much... Talk about literally working kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, Inside I the mentioned engine. it earlier, but, like, that was their role. They were small enough to fit in this little compartment mm-hmm. to do this one task. Yeah, and that was... uh. I thought that was very impactful. And I love the end of the film in the fact that everything I said at the beginning was it came true. The entire train came to a halt. Pretty much everybody on the train died except for two people. We, I, I think we can safely say that most everybody on the train died except for those two people. Yeah, all the commentaries I've seen on it, that's kind of the synopsis that um, all we're left with is this new hope, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we see a polar bear, and that's the hope, is the polar yeah. bear uh, that they see is that life is out there. They just yep. have to... Life is coming back. Yeah. And I thought that was some... I love the ending of it, and, you know, it's like we said, you know, even if it requires the entire system to just fall apart and not exist anymore, and that the world pretty much comes to an end for a lot of everyone in that system... It's a change for the better, and there is hope. So yeah. Well, what a journey from what the front to the back. I feel I felt like I was on a world uh, spanning <laughs> train. Yes, we made a revolution in this hour. <laughs> Revolutions and revelations. So what? Uh, what was your rating overall? If you had to give it one, my rating. So Too I soon. Well, I'll I'll give it. So, I would give it, if I gave the, if I gave Knives Out an 8 out of 10, I would give this one a 7 out of 10. Because, Mm. and it's because of, there were minor details in the fact that if you watch Knives Out, it's a very well put together and well edited film to where I didn't notice many stutters. At, in it at all but there were a few stutters in this film that i saw whether it was just a quick like split second scene that was just a little like off like it, mm-hmm. it's almost like when you're listening to a song and it kind of like you hear a jarring note and you're like oh that doesn't sound right you know what i mean yeah which the first one came at the beginning whenever uh the people in the back of the train one of them is hit by the guard and that, that came in the first, like, five minutes, I think. And I was just like, that seemed a bit, you know, that cut seemed a little iffy, you know. So I'm getting very technical on it. But as a story in general, I thought it was very well put together. Um, yeah. And I loved the idea, the premise, everything. I loved what it stood for. It's just technically, I think there were a few bits and pieces, like whenever Ed Harris's character starts speaking, it sounded so much like it was voiced over and mm-hmm. i was like that kind of detracts a little bit but that's god talking i i guess that's what they wanted to <laughs> uh they wanted to employ with that but it just kind of took me out and i was like is that voiceover is that yeah it's got to be voiceover because nobody else in the entire film sounded like that mm. so i was just yeah. like that might have been a creative choice uh, but I thought it was sure. voiced over, and I was like, "That's the wrong creative choice." <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I promise I'm not copying you, but I also would give it a seven out of ten mm-hmm. for not necessarily the same reasons, but just there were times where it felt like the plot kind of allowed some holes that I 
felt like I probably shouldn't have even been thinking about. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I was thinking about them meant that I was being pulled out of something. Right. And despite the interesting and kind of wild and super intriguing world that the story is set in, because mm-hmm. I eat that stuff up. Like I love Lore, worlds gone, world building, post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Like let's rebuild type of stories and the idea of the film on that level is a 10 out of 10 for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it just comes down to some execution things. And, you know, I, I think it's one that I would love to watch again multiple times. I would recommend people watching. Um, so it's, I think you give something a seven out of 10 and people are like, Whoa, like, why are you crapping on it? It's like, dude. <laughs> Did Where? you get a C in school? Like you passed. Like that's good. Yeah. But you started getting into the fours and fives. That's where it's like, all right, Hallmark movies. What's up? <laughs> that's straight to DVD stuff. But um, yeah, it's not a, a bash on it at all. And I think it's a really well-made film. And again, just second time reviewing a Bong movie. And I think he's he's going to be around for a while. Yeah. And it, I think you said it perfectly is the fact that I think we're holding these films to a very strict, like, high standard is why we're probably giving it a lot of, like, 7 out of 10s and uh, yeah. stuff like that. It's because, I mean, it can be personal preference. I love sci-fi. I love these types of premises, just like you said. But it's just mm-hmm. there was some executional stuff that just kind of was jarring to me. Um, right. But to many other people, these are very minute and doesn't mean much right yeah so it's just more of things that are very personal and what i've noticed and you know i think you won't ever hear me take a complete dump on a film because i know how hard it is to make one and i think ken's in the same boat in that regard so you're not going to get that from us but we're going to try and be as critical as we can because you know why not we're reviewing a film and we're talking about it so let's dig in yeah definitely Well, thank you guys so much for listening. It's been fantastic. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you want to, you can catch us on Instagram at the Cinevibes. We also have our email, Cinevibescast. At Gmail. Uh, But you can find us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with another movie review very soon. All right. And we are out.